Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack, and I am again joined by Ryan Aris and Dr. Joe Boot. And uh, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but uh, we're really seeing uh, the rise in the number of subscribers to our podcast. We're very thankful for that. And we've been greatly encouraged uh, by emails coming in from all over Canada, the mm-hmm. United States, uh, UK, Ukraine, South Africa. Uh, so we encourage you, keep emailing us. We really appreciate them. They're a blessing to us. and We make a point to read through all the emails that come in. And if you'd like to connect with us in person, uh, be sure to sign up for the Mission of God conference. It's coming up quickly on June 5th. It'll be held here at our study center in Grimsby, Ontario. We certainly hope to see you there. And we are very excited to say that Pastor James Coates will soon be released from prison as early as Friday. And Fantastic. Uh, it was amazing news. We weren't expecting it today, but this is uh, a press release from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. And I'm just going to read uh, a brief portion of it for us. And they've, they've been uh, defending and advocating for Pastor Coates this time. That's right. And uh, here's a bit from their press release. Today, Crown prosecutors have agreed to withdraw all but one of the Public Health Act offenses that Pastor James Coates has been charged with. The Justice Center expects Pastor Coates will be released from jail in the coming days without any conditions pending his May 3rd to 5th trial in provincial court. The Justice Center will defend Pastor Coates on one remaining charge of violating an order of the Chief Medical Officer of Health by challenging the lawfulness of the public health order that he is charged with violating. The single charge remaining has not been withdrawn, as the Justice Center and Pastor Coates want the matter to be heard at trial, to determine the constitutionality of the public health order that churches only hold worship services at 15% capacity, and to compel the government to produce scientific evidence that might support these violations of charter freedoms. The trial is scheduled to take place beginning on May 3rd, 2021. So mark that date on your calendars, and really, what else can you say but praise God? Mm-hmm. Mm. And let's be in prayer for him. You know, he's, mm. he's being released, but it's not to say that like he, the, the charges are still going ahead. There's still, uh, mm-hmm. there's still work to be done here. That's yeah, there's right. one. There's one. So, so one. Most of the charges have been dropped. There's one charge that's uh, uh, going ahead. But it sounds as though um, there's the justice center that wanted mm-hmm. and James that wanted to go forward mm-hmm. with that that's in right. order to press this matter mm-hmm. uh, in the courts about the constitutionality, which I think is a is a good decision. And I think it's been a combination of, of course, prayer, political pressure, um, advocacy um, from a number of groups. Um, including um, our friends that we had on last week at the Liberty Coalition Canada, Mm -hmm. Um, podcasts, articles, people speaking out on this issue internationally even. Um, And uh, that's applied, I think, a a certain amount of pressure to the government in Alberta. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're so thankful for JCCF in this as well because they have worked tirelessly uh, to to defend pastors under attack Mm -hmm. during this lockdown. Mm All over the country. All over the country, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they're one of the few. And uh, so well done to 
John Carpe and Lisa Bildy and, and others, uh, James Kitchen and mm-hmm. the J- JCCF team right across the country. We're thankful. We're grateful for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and this situation with Pastor Coates really is a, a great springboard for our topic for today. We've been meaning to discuss this for quite some time, uh, but it's the topic of theonomy. And we've been meaning to address it because really whenever we come across any kind of resource that's out there, uh, whether it be a podcast or an article, uh, we've seen loads of confusion, misunderstandings, misrepresentation, and we really hope to, to clear some of that up today if we can. And uh, it's, it's really been interesting to look through a lot of these articles that have come out that are highly critical of, of theonomy, uh, but again, really, really clear that they don't quite understand theonomy themselves. Uh, so I... I'm hoping, Joe, right off the top here, maybe you can you can clear some of this up and, and give us uh, give us a bit of a description. What what is theonomy? Yeah, so this is a this is a topic that um, is interestingly sort of raised its head, uh, interestingly enough, uh, in a kind of a fresh way in the last twelve months, mm-hmm. uh, with all the the lockdowns and the uh, the the. the the challenge that has been put forward by some Christian leaders to an overbearing reach of the state, um, to what we'd say would be a radical overreach of state authority into the sphere of the church and the family and so on. And then with questions about the constitutionality of certain laws um, that have been passed and so on, it's been interesting that uh, those who have had a strong view of the law of God have... um, been resistant mm-hmm. to what's taken place, mm-hmm. and those who have had a uh, a more, let's say, a more dismissive attitude, um, or a less robust attitude towards the law of God, have taken a more uh, compliant attitude. Mm. Um, in I think, as a generalization, that's fair because uh, I'm saying that in part because we've seen, interestingly enough, several articles come out um, in recent weeks, even recent months, that seem almost left of field, but are attacking uh, theonomy, um, using terms like theocracy, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, pulling out some boogeyman words, mm-hmm. you know, Christendom and so on. Um, coercion. Uh, yeah, coercion, mm-hmm. imposition, mm-hmm. And, and so on. Um, in relationship, somehow, as though it's connected to this discussion about the freedom of the church, mm. the role of the state, and so on. And... Um, I'm not surprised because they are connected. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they, they are actually related. And um, some of the guns have turned towards us, as you know, <laughs> and myself and the <laughs> Institute, um, with respect to this, uh, because anybody who's read The Mission of God knows that two or three chapters in my book, The Mission of God, deal specifically with God's law um, and the role of God's law, God's law in society, and mm-hmm. so on. So it's probably best to start with, because many of our listeners won't have even come across the term or be familiar with any of the discussion, but basically theonomy simply means uh, God's law. That's all it means. And as Cornelius Van Til once famously put it, it's theonomy or autonomy. That's the choice. Theonomy is God's law. Autonomy means self-law, man's law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that this and is a basic juxtaposition. And I was just going to say, right, right there off the top, you're going to get the comeback that, well, you're oversimplifying a really complicated issue. You hear that all the time when that 
when those choices are yeah. laid in front of people. Yeah, Jesus had a habit of oversimplifying complicated <laughs> issues. Um, in Matthew 5, he really oversimplifies it when he expounds the law um, on the mountain. It's interesting, you see, Moses um, gives the law, the, uh, which is um, an expression of the will of God. Uh, the prophets call Israel back to obedience to the law, and not just Israel. Uh, when Moses gives the law, you see there in Deuteronomy 4, we see that the expectation is that Israel is going to be a model for the nations. That's the expectation, that the nations around Israel who obey the will of God will say, who has laws like these laws? Who has a God like this God? Mm and will be, in a sense, provoked to jealousy, and will want to copy Israel. Mm -hmm. Moreover, when you look at the prophets calling people, calling Israel back to the Lord, they don't just prophesy about Israel. They also, Amos, for yeah. example, holds the pagan nations around Israel to account in terms of the standards of God's law. Mm -hmm. When God it's throws... the whole point of the book of Jonah. Precisely. Mm. And jo in fact, Jonah is a tremendous example because the God sends a re very reluctant prophet mm -hmm. to the Assyrian Empire mm -hmm. to tell them to turn from their sins. Or well, what sins? Some mm -hmm. generic sort of idea of the law of Christ? Mm -hmm. uh, no, there's a very concrete um, uh, notion here of a law that's been made manifest historically. Um, and Jonah calls the nation to repent uh, from sin, and of course we know the story of, most of our listeners I hope will know the story of Jonah and his response to their repentance and so on. But he's a paradigmatic example. Um, you also have, of course, the uh, some of the Israelites in exile, uh, where you see pagan leaders actually enacting law concerning the worship of the living God, for example, in Babylon, in the life of Daniel. And then the Canaanites, again, a great example of uh, a people who are, um, well, the scripture says that why, why was Israel in, uh, why were the Hebrews in slavery in, in Egypt for 400 years? Because the sin of the Canaanites had not yet reached full measure. At that point, the land vomits them out. Mm -hmm. And God allows Israel to drive out the Canaanites for their lawlessness. But then God warns Israel itself and says, but if you commit the same sins, the land's going to vomit you out as well. So there aren't two standards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There isn't one standard for um, the nation of Israel, one standard for the pagan nations around. There is the law of God, as the prophet Isaiah says, that the, uh, the, the, the world stands under judgment, under a curse, because it has violated the everlasting covenant. So Moses uh, makes manifest the will of God in the law. The prophets call the nations back to the law. Proverbs instructs a son in the law. Uh, the Psalms sing about and celebrate the law. I mean, the longest chapter in all of the Bible, Psalm 119, is a celebration of the law of God. And Jesus expounds the law in the Sermon on the Mount and magnifies it. Mm -hmm. So um, whatever we say, whatever we have understood about this issue thus far, Let's be absolutely crystal clear that the law of God, every word of God is law. Hmm. So we should probably start by saying, what do we mean by God's hmm. law? Well, first of all, we mean, of course, his creation law word. Every word of God is law. It's binding. God's law at this very moment holds the universe together. But it's the word of his power. 
that holds all things together. His word is law. So we can talk about the lawfulness of creation, hmm. normativity within creation. That's an aspect of God's law. And then, as Evan Runner would have said, we can talk about republication of that law in the scriptures. So there is an inscripturation of God's law, which we have in the Bible. Um, and, of course, um, covenant is, is law and blood. And God deals with human beings in terms of covenant relationship. And from the very beginning, law and blood come together uh, in the biblical idea of covenant. So there's sanction attached to law. Law is not just advice. Mm -hmm. It's not just guidance, you know, take it or leave it. Um, God attaches sanctions to his law. That's why you have the judgment on the pagan nations. That's why Jonah is sent to Nineveh. It's why Amos does preach to the surrounding nations and so on. So fundamentally, theonomy means God's law, um, and his, word is, his law word is manifest in creation, it's manifest in scripture, and of course, Jesus Christ himself is the living Torah. He is the, he is the in a certain sense, the, the, the manifestation, the fulfillment, the full manifestation, the telos of the law. That When we look at Christ, we see the one who keeps God, the true Israelite, the one who keeps God's law perfectly, mm. totally, mm -hmm. fully. And in fact, he, he uh, corrects the misunderstandings of the teachers of the law in Matthew chapter 5, which is a mm -hmm. fascinating, of course, and often misunderstood passage. And in fact, some of the dispensationalists, of, uh, like Lewis Berry Chafer and others, said, well, this is old covenant. This doesn't even mm -hmm. belong. For the, it's not even for the Christian because mm -hmm. they don't know what to do with the, the law. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is Jesus is crystal clear that this is for... Uh, his his people throughout history because it's the kingdom people that's addressed because he says that if you obey these and you teach them you're going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven and if you disobey them and teach others to do likewise you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven but there's an internalizing of the law in the teaching of christ it's not merely external as a something that imposes on me from the outside, but now he says it's rooted, it's all, it's to do with the heart. Mm. And so he corrects the misinterpretations of, he says, you have heard that it was said. Notice that he doesn't say, you heard Moses say, and I'm gonna correct Moses. He says, you have heard that it was said. So he's dealing with misinterpretations of the law of God that had persisted. And he exegetes the law as he goes up onto the mountain as the greater Moses and explicates its the, the fullness of its meaning. So let's all be clear. I hope that all Christians can agree on the centrality of the law throughout all of Scripture, um, that uh, it's the law word of God that is the very condition of life. Law is the condition of life, and in Scripture, obedience to God is the way of life, and his word is instruction, his word is, is law. So that's a basic definition of what we mean by theonomy. And theonomy specifically as it's become to be talked about theologically, uh, is a view within Christian ethics. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about the moral aspect and the juridical aspect. And at the heart of the juridical aspect of our lives is the idea of tribution or retribution, but tribution especially to, to be um, rewarded in terms of uh, what you deserve, mm -hmm. to, be, to be given your due tribution, and, of course, that opens itself up in terms of the moral aspect of the command of love because Jesus makes clear that 
love and 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 commandment and law are bound together they're not mm -hmm. they're not in antithetical relationship mm -hmm. to each other you know well you're not loving brother because you keep talking about the law no mm -hmm. law and love are bound together that's why paul in romans 13 says love is the fulfillment of the law and christ could summarize the law and the commandments in love god and love your neighbor so we'll be right back what is the mission of God's people in the world, and what is the Christian's responsibility when it comes to participating in and shaping culture? The Mission of God Conference is an event for Christians of all walks of life. It's an opportunity to worship, fellowship, and study as we gather to honor Christ, learn from His Word, and consider what it means to live our lives and shape our world in obedience to King Jesus. The world COVID crisis has spread division through all areas of life, and the church has been no exception. When mankind sinned, the earth was cursed, bringing struggle, disease, and death into the world. In spite of this, the Lord commanded mankind to fill and subdue the earth, turning the raw material of creation into a God-glorifying culture. How do we faithfully apply this command in our current crisis? On Saturday, June 5th, join Dr. Cal Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation and Dr. Joe Boot at the Ezra Institute Farmstead in Grimsby, Ontario, as we pursue a God-honoring answer to these questions. Visit ezrainstitute.ca to get your tickets today. So, theonomy is a view within Christian ethics uh, that uh, sees a central place for the law of God as remaining relevant and binding for Christians. Of course, there's details to pick through in there, which we'll over this week and next week we'll, we'll talk about. Um, sometimes the, the, the term theonomy is immediately connected with the word theocracy, um, uh, but uh, those are distinct discussions in terms of the, the, the obligations of the individual, the family, the church, and the state, and their relationship to the law of God. Um, and so we can talk about the meaning of those shortly, but fundamentally as we as we introduce this idea of theonomy it's god's law and how what are our obligations toward god in terms of his his law word over against a freewheeling notion that god's law is now somehow finished irrelevant uh vanished no longer important to the life of the christian or the life of the family or the life of the state mm. so joe you mentioned earlier uh cornelius van till was it Dutch American philosopher in the middle of the 20th century as uh, he he sort of gave gave voice to that theonomy versus aut autonomy dichotomy uh, is that where theonomy as a movement or a wing of Christian thought began or wh what are the origins of it mm -hmm. so that's an important question too because sometimes the uh, the this whole idea of the, the term theonomy is spoken about as though there's some kind of new radical idea that got uh, mm -hmm. recently thrown into the mix. Mm -hmm. um, and that would not be the case at all. In fact, John Frame um, has pointed out uh, repeatedly that the, the theonomic stream of thought, um, especially from the Reformation, is very strong. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, he would call it a tendency. The theonomy is a, is a tendency. It's an emphasis hmm. within Reformed mm -hmm. Uh, thought. Now, you can go all the way back to Augustine and find Augustine saying very positive things about the law of God, but it wasn't systematically worked out because as the Christian faith was interacting with the Greek world, Greek thought, Greek philosophy, and there were ideas of eternal law and, and, and an eternal rational law and so on, 
the role of God's revealed law is not systematically worked out by Augustine, and I do comment on that in Mission of God, but uh, he had positive things to say about it. You have to wait for a real systematic uh, exposition of it, really, until the Reformation, when uh, with a sort of re-introduction uh, of, of a Hebraic understanding uh, gets emphasized again by the Reformers, especially Calvin, although L Luther said important things about the relevance of the law as well. That Harold Berman points that out, actually, in his analysis of Western law. Um, but it's particularly the Calvinistic arm of the Reformation, where there's a strong emphasis with Calvin, Theodore Beezer, and others um, on the law. Take Calvin's expositions of the book of Deuteronomy in Geneva as just one example. Uh, and then uh, that... Um, high view of the law and its relevance in the life of the Christian, in the life of the family, in the state, is um, applied sort of par excellence in the beginnings of the modern era by the Puritans. And you had John Knox in Scotland, you had Oliver Cromwell in England and John Owen, um, and uh, tremendous um, practical uh, uh, expositions of the law. You see it in the Confessions, and in fact, I deal in Mission of God with um, the, the way in which the major reform confessions deal with the relevance of the law, not just for the Christian life, but for the civil magistrate. Mm. And uh, we, we begin to see renovations of civil law as well um, in that era in terms of biblical law, which was making actually European law much more humane, um, directed towards the authority of God's law. Um, and um, you see massive reductions in death, death sentences, for example, death penalty crimes, as people take, begin to take seriously um, the biblical mandates and, and, uh, and requirements. And then that goes on into the evangelical uh, era with people like William Wilberforce, where there's mm. a continued emphasis on scriptural law. And you have the influence, of course, of biblical law on the entire Western legal tradition. I mean, the from the first codification of English law with Alfred the Great, that begins with the Ten Commandments and passages from the book of Acts and Paul's epistles. So from the very first codification of our Western legal tradition, mm -hmm. um, and, and it really comes to expression there in the, in the Puritans and then amongst some of the evangelicals. And then you have this big gap. Uh, and, you know, there was a, um, a group of scholars in the middle of the 20th century who began to re, uh, take another look mm -hmm. at the relevance of biblical law. Um, and ask the questions about why it had been overlooked. And I think part of the reason for that is that uh, with the Protestant Reformation and then the Evangelical Awakening, we have been able to take essentially the biblical, the nascent character of biblical law in our society for granted. Um, Sabbath laws, for example, we only repealed Sabbath law mm -hmm. uh, here in Canada, and I think in 82, was it? Yeah. Somewhere yeah. there. Early 80s. Early, early 80s. Uh, we've seen, you know, the repeal of blasphemy laws in the last few years, um, some of the final death penalty laws disappearing mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, so we've been in a, and I expect we'll have Jonathan Birdside talk about this next week with us, but we've seen the sort of 60 or last, since World War II, we've seen a revolution of repealing uh, biblical law. Um, and so in the sort of middle to towards the end of the 20th century, there were some... Um, uh, thinkers in the United States in particular, I sort of call them the New Puritans, men like um, R.J. Rush Dooney, 
whose Institutes of Biblical Law in three volumes in particular takes a long look at the Ten Commandments and and begins to exposit Mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments uh, and really brings back into the discussion of modern evangelicalism Mm -hmm. the law of God. When you think about the Puritans and the Puritans that are popular today, there's been an interest in the Puritans over the last 30 or 40 years that's kind of sprung up, but it's mainly been in Puritan piety, Puritan prayer, Puritan preaching. It hasn't focused on what the Puritans had to say about God's law mm-hmm. um, and the Ten Commandments, God's law for society, God's law in the family, God's law in our lives as individuals. Books like Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex and others uh, have been you know, routinely ignored, even by those who are Puritan scholars. Um, so the bits of the Puritans we don't like so much <laughs> uh, because they don't seem to fit so well with the modern age. We've tended to skirt over um, or ignore, and um, um, in the last 30 years or so, uh, guys like Greg Barnson, um, whose Theonomy and Christian Ethics was a was one major work in this area, begins to take a long, hard look again at biblical law, and then Jonathan Burnside, one of our fellows, whose book God, Justice, and Society, and he's writing as a legal scholar, teaches mm-hmm. law at the University of Bristol in England, mm-hmm. um, not even in the theology department. He's talking about the, 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 the relevance, the power, the importance of biblical law. So it's not a new idea at all. It's a very old one, but it's a neglected area. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you neglect something for long enough, it feels new. Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. been able to neglect it because mm-hmm. we've been able to presume on the broadly Christian character of the West for so long. Right. And now that we're in a situation where you see the rapid decline of the West and you've mm-hmm. got the, the, the falling off, the falling away, if you will, um, uh, of, the, of the Western world, um, and, with, and Christians are starting to face all of this cultural pressure, you know, Bill C-6, Bill C-7, mm-hmm. um, pastors going, uh, being Im- imprisoned for violating lockdown orders, these sorts of things, things that were sort of unthinkable even uh, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, mm-hmm. um, are forcing the issue somewhat um, uh, upon us of considering again, well, hang on a moment, what has happened to our society because uh, these things don't all happen overnight. It's a process. And now we're asking, do we have any tools to respond mm. to radical secularization and de-Christianization? But it hasn't been on the table for a long time because we haven't really, people haven't felt the need to consider it in a, a society that's had a Christian stamp, let's say, as Doybird would have put it. And I had a feeling we'd uh, circle back to Matthew 5 a few times during this podcast, but uh, you, you mentioned it earlier. And in verse 19 uh, of Matthew 5, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I feel we're generally comfortable with this uh, in the church but we become very uncomfortable when, when we talk about this applying to the state as well. Um, why might that be? I think in general that's true. Mm-hmm. I think what's been disturbing over the last 25 years is how uncomfortable people are even in the church with it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for mm-hmm. example, I mean, if you ask yourself a very basic question, how many Christians today can name the Ten Commandments in order. Mm-hmm. And you, you ask for a show of hands in the average church, and very few, if any, mm. 
could stand up and, and give you in order the Ten Commandments. And it's because um, in recent decades, the Ten Commandments have dropped out of the church's liturgy mm. on the whole. Mm. For example, in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, uh, the, the the commandments are central to the communion service. Most churches would have displayed the Ten Commandments on their wall, like we do at mm. Westminster, um, and would have Christians would have recited the Ten Commandments almost weekly. When you went to court, the crown courts, the the Ten Commandments hung on the walls of the crown courts. So there was a kind of there was a sort of public awareness, a general awareness of God's commands. And so now, even among Christians, I think there's such a an ignorance of of God's law that uh, we really have a, an increasingly antinomian church. And antinomianism means simply to be anti-law, anti-nomos law. Um, and the danger of that position, I think, is demonstrated in Scripture by the simple fact that in uh, 1 John 3, 4, sin is called lawlessness. When sin is defined in the Bible, mm-hmm. sin is not a nebulous idea like, mm-hmm. oh, a mistake, uh, mm-hmm. an error mm-hmm. you know the different ways in which modern evangelicals love to try and avoid even saying the word sin mm-hmm. brokenness brokenness mm-hmm. yeah that's mm-hmm. right alienation I mean yeah. they're all useful words in their place mm-hmm. um, in explicating the effects of sin right um, but sin is lawlessness that's what it means and um, Satan is in scripture the man of lawlessness and um, Christ according to Paul in Titus 2:14, has come to redeem us from all lawlessness, to redeem us from all lawlessness. So uh, the the first challenge we have is actually in the church, because, of course, until you have a high view of God's law within the church, you can't possibly even begin to talk about how God's law might be relevant outside of it. Because if you actually despise it or or uh, overlook it or neglect it or negate it in the life of the church, what interest would there be in 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 um, dealing with it in relation to the state? But it but it, to give a, a very direct answer to your question, I think obviously what happens is as soon as you talk about God's law outside of the ecclesiastical area of the church, uh, a boatload more questions arise, and we've we addressed, we have addressed repeatedly on this program um, where the mistakes come in there, because if you do not grasp the scriptural principle of sphere sovereignty, Mm. and uh, perhaps we need another show on teasing out how the Bible teaches this broad principle, um, but if you don't grasp the, 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 the way in which the role, the calling, and the jurisdiction of the family and of the church and of the state, for example, are different and distinguished, people immediately think, well, are you saying then that you want to impose in some autocratic way God's law upon everybody else and persecute those who don't do it? And you even have hysterical Christians saying that, uh, you know, um, you know, the the Presbyterians would cast the Baptists into prison in such an order and, and vice versa and so on. This is all, these are all terrible um, distortions and misunderstandings of what we're talking about. So that's why it's a kind of a distinctive discussion to talk about democracy, theocracy, um, autocracy, aristocracy. These are all to do with, these are all um, views of um, of how authority and power are exercised mm-hmm. and distributed within a society. And um, uh, I would argue that actually really all 
political orders are theocratic. They just have different gods. So the god might be the, uh, the, the people, vox populi, vox dei, literally means the voice of the people is the voice of God. Uh, uh, you can have monarchies, and of course some of the monarchies until the, uh, uh, the Puritan Revolution believed they ruled by divine right. Uh, they weren't subject to law. Um, and so uh, there are all these different views, and that's a kind of political philosophy discussion. But what tends to happen is hysterical Christians start to conflate and confuse all of these issues. They hear God's law. They hear the word society mm-hmm. and civil order, and they panic and mm-hmm. think, you know, Christian Taliban mm-hmm. running around uh, imposing God's law on everyone. No, that, that is not. That's, just, that's the farthest thing actually in the world from what we mean by um, a theonomic view in Christian ethics and the application of God's law as we apply it in the family and as we apply it in the church and as then it would be applied in a state with a Christian stamp on it where people were demanding Christian law, not pagan law as they're demanding now, um, would be reflected differently. Um, so, and it would involve the principle of sphere sovereignty so i think people generally the issue nathan is that there's a, a sort of bizarre panic sets in um that uh, we're, we're we're talking about some kind of ecclesiastical ecclesiastical order and ecclesiocracy mm-hmm. um of churchmen imposing god's law on, on on everyone and um of course because um most people uh, uh most of us it's interesting actually how juries the reason some laws just drop off the books is because when juries stop convicting people of uh, of a particular offense that's on the statute books, there's no point trying to enforce it anymore. And when that happens, when juries are so engaged in that act or that behavior themselves, they won't, they can't bring themselves to convict anybody else. So there's a reason why when you see a radical change in the law order of a society, you're, you've, you've, you're witnessing the manifestation of a change of religion in that society. Mm-hmm. All law rests on a principle of sovereignty and looks to an ultimate source of authority. That's either the God of scripture or is some other God. So when you begin to repeal and move against God's law in a society, you've already witnessed a change of gods in that order. Mm. So there's a, there's an objection that kind of comes from the other direction from some from Christians that okay let's say that the law is good that it's a a good and worthy sort of ordering principle for society but the objection or the hesitancy for uh, that somebody would have for to uh, to identifying as a theonomist or a, or supporting a theonomic uh, outlook is the ju- the apparent opposition, I guess I should say, between law and grace. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. the law is not what saves us, and it seems to them to be taking a step backwards. Even if, you know, the law is good for mm-hmm. society, we don't have a better one, and uh, many will affirm that, mm-hmm. but the law is not of faith. The, uh, Hebrews mm-hmm. 8 says that the old order has made, or Right. has that, been made obsolete. Yeah. That works righteousness alarm starts going off right. in people's mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a common misunderstanding uh, that the law was at some point in biblical history a means of salvation, mm. and that that way has now been done away, mm. 
and therefore to speak about the law, to apply the law, um, uh, and we'll perhaps in a moment we can you can bring us back to how we rightly divide the law. Mm-hmm. Um, but the notion that if we come back to the law, we're moving backwards, um, and that uh, we are we are looking for salvation in, uh, by by works by our own works. And the, 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 the primary error that's being made there is the assumption that, that there was some point in the history of God's revelation that people were saved by the law. It's always been a misuse of the law to think that in it is salvation. In fact, God has to repeatedly say to Israel, I, um, I require obedience, not sacrifice, which is to say faith, faithfulness, mm-hmm. trust, walking with me, uh, not you following the details of the ceremonial aspects of the law, that as long as I follow, as, as long as I cross this I and dot this T over here, I mean, Jesus gives us a wonderful example when he says to the Pharisees, you bring your cumin and your spices and so forth uh, uh, to fulfill a, a detail in the, uh, as, a, as an aspect of your tithe. Um, and you neglect to care for your own parents. And he repeatedly accuses the Pharisees of making void the law by their tradition. You see this, um, I think it's Matthew 7, Mark 14, might be the other way around, I haven't got them written down here. Um, But I think it's that way around, Um, where in dealing with assaults, verbal and physical assaults on parents, um, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they've made void the law Mm. by their tradition. So, there's an important there's a, an important issue there which we can perhaps uh, uh, develop and discuss, but the fundamental issue is that when um, Christians presume that to talk about law we're introducing another way of salvation is a fundamental hermeneutical mistake. Paul in Galatians makes clear that the promise, and of course Scripture is constitutes is constituted of promise and command. Uh, the Paul is clear that the promise to Abraham that through your seed, and he says it was to not the many, but the one, which is Christ. So he actually makes a grammatical point mm-hmm. that the promise is made to Christ. This is the, the promise of salvation to the seed of Abraham. And that he believed God is credited to him as credited to him as righteousness. Mm-hmm. Right? It it was always faith in the promises. So the law has never been the uh, means of life. It's never been the means of salvation. Uh, it's the way of life. In other words, to, this, is the, this is the path of life. Walk in it. This is the way God says, walk ye, in the King James, walk ye in it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the path of life. So if you love God mm-hmm. and you believe his promises concerning the, the, the seed, concerning the promise, concerning redemption, if you believe that. Mm -hmm. And look, Hebrews is crystal clear, isn't it, on this in Hebrews 11, Mm. that these people weren't made famous through uh, works righteousness. Mm -hmm. They were made famous by faith. Mm -hmm. It was by faith. It's the righteousness of faith uh, that, that made Abraham great. It was the righteousness of faith that made Moses great. The law was never given as, here is the way you can be saved. Mm -hmm. In fact, when the law was given on the mountain, 
God gives the plans for the temple, which is the sacrificial order and the, the plans for the sacrificial system and the priesthood that was to be instituted because the priesthood and the sacrifices were the picture, the shadow, as the writer of Hebrews would say, of the coming atonement. And it was when those sacrifices were performed, the blood sacrifice in terms of faith in the promise, that they were efficacious, the day of atonement. Uh, but the law was never, let's put it this way, the, the law was there as a mirror. Paul uses that uh, uh, illustration. But it was never the water to wash yourself in. You can't wash yourself in the law. Mm-hmm. The law, Paul is clear, reveals your sin. He says, I would not know sin um, but by the law. Uh, but he goes on to say, actually, in Romans, um, that the, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, it's just and it's good, but you can't wash in it. Mm-hmm. You, can't be, you can't be cleansed mm-hmm. by works of the law. It can show you your sin, and it's the measure, it acts as a measuring rod for our progress in sanctification. Christ says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Mm-hmm. It, it's a measure of our progress. But we can't take the law off the wall and wash in it. It's the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. So covenant is always law and blood, always. And when Christ renews the covenant, cuts the new covenant, he says, here is the new covenant in my blood. But he doesn't give a new law because the law's already been given and he expounds it. What changes, and this is, the, this is where people get confused, they can't t- typically distinguish between what is continuous, so the question of continuity and discontinuity. What Hebrews is driving at, and you talked about that which, was, um, uh, that which was, has passed, is about to vanish away, Right, is that the change, as Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 makes clear, is not in the commands in the substance of the law, it's the change is in the priesthood uh, and in the location of the law. So the law is no longer an external thing on tablets of stone in the Ark of the Covenant. The law, according to Jeremiah 31, which is the, the new covenant, and Hebrews 8, has now been inscribed on our hearts. It's no longer an external thing. It's an internal thing. The Spirit of God writes the law on our hearts. And we now delight in it. And now it's a source of delight and joy. So I delight to do your will. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Spirit of God, letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, Paul says. It's the Spirit of God now who makes this live in us as we are conformed to the image of his Son, Christ, who perfectly kept the law. Obviously, we're not being conformed to disobedience to the law. I mean, if Christ is the living Torah, perfectly obeyed the law, and we're being conformed to the image of his Son, we're not being conformed to lawlessness. So... It becomes our desire and delight. And the priesthood is changed as well. And the priesthood also is not new. It's older than the Aaronic priesthood. It's the order of Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. You are a priest forever, Hebrew says of Christ, after the order of Melchizedek. And that was Abraham who paid a tithe, uh, you'll recall in Genesis, to Melchizedek. And we are part of a new priesthood, uh, which serves in a better sanctuary, and it's based on better promises. And the promise is, is that, which of course is manifest at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the tearing of the temple curtain at his death 
as the way into the Holy of Holies is the better promises that this is the blood, the writer says in Hebrews, that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Here we now have a blood where we don't have to go year by year mm -hmm. into the Holy of Holies by the blood of bulls and goats and so on. That was a shadow. That's vanishing away. That's passing away. But God's law isn't passing away. Jesus says the opposite in Matthew 5. Mm -hmm. He says it's not going to pass until heaven and earth pass away. Not a punctuation mark mm -hmm. is going to be done away. So we have to interpret scripture with scripture. So we can't say that what the writer of Hebrews means there is that all of God's laws just disappeared. Because Jesus says it's going to last till heaven and earth pass away. What he means is that the priesthood, that era, that that. That the, all that went with the era of that priesthood and the temple sacrifices and the ceremonies has passed away. But when Jesus cuts covenant with the disciples, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He says, here's the new blood because there's a new priesthood. But he doesn't say, now here's my new law. Are you taking notes? Mm -hmm. He doesn't give new law. So this is my question to all those who say, well, it's not the law now, it's the law of Christ. Please tell us the content. Mm -hmm of the law of Christ. Because I agree with you. Yeah. It's the law of Christ. But the, you're saying then that the law of Christ is different from the law that God, that Jesus Christ himself, that the, that the, the Son of God himself delivers to Moses? The, the Jesus who, who on the mountain of transfiguration is with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, that he is contradicting their law and delivering a new law? No, we would say... There is continuity and there's discontinuity. Here in the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, which speaks better things based on better promises, fulfills, puts into, brings to completion, as Christ is the telos of the law, and puts into force the full meaning and full significance, the spiritual, the depth of the significance of the law, no longer now as an external thing, mm -hmm. but something that's radically internal for the believer. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the change. So if we, if, when we're trying to harmonize those biblical texts that at times feel as though they're saying things that are in tension with one another, that's where we see this, um, this principle of continuity and, and discontinuity. And I think the problem with modern evangelicalism in general is that it's, it's emphasized to an almost absurd degree discontinuity uh, and overlooked the issue of continuity um, uh, of the law in its, in its various aspects. Maybe we can talk about some of those. So Joe, a bit earlier, you touched on, uh, the reform division of the law. Um, I'm sure you're talking about the civil ceremonial and moral divisions of the law. Maybe you can, uh, for our listeners, uh, expand on that a little bit. Sure. So, uh, one of the ways in which, so we've, we've dealt with the issue of grace and law, um, but this is related to this, because when you look at how um, Paul discusses the issue in, in Romans 3, he's actually talking in, in Romans 3 and 4 about Abraham, righteousness through faith, and so on and so forth. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, do we then cancel the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So uh, that's Romans 3.31, which I mentioned earlier. So we know that the law is that the, the law is upheld. The law is the, the law is good. Uh, it's it's holy, um, and we uphold the law by faith. We don't destroy it. So the reformers were wrestling with well, how do we um, 
understand and work through which parts of the law continue um, and which parts are set aside. Um, how do we, are there divisions that we can recognize within the law? And uh, not everybody agrees on how to do that because the law doesn't, doesn't come divided up into three sections and say, here's the ceremonial requirements, here's the civil requirements, here's the moral requirements. Um, and, and some even among the sort of the Puritan thinkers and the new Puritans uh, like Barnson, would, he would have argued that uh, the moral law and the, the, the civil law are of a piece, they're, they're part of one another. Um, so the, the law comes as, as a whole, um, and therefore it does require work, because the, the Bible's clear that there's continuity and discontinuity. So, you, so there is interpretative work to be done, so we don't want to oversimplify the situation. Mm -hmm. And I think my view is that there is validity to the moral, civil, ceremonial um, divisions, not because we have three tables within the Bible with all those mm -hmm. laws listed, but because there are, um, as Hebrews is very clear, elements of the law, actually Calvin would have said, that are transposed. They're not abolished. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the ceremonial aspects about the priesthood, the blood, and so on, and even laws of separation and distinction, he would say they've been transposed into the heavenly temple, um, where the, the writer says that Christ sprinkles his blood upon the mercy seat and intercedes for us mm -hmm. as a priest. Uh, so that there is a, remember that the earthly temple was a copy. So it was a copy of something greater. It was a copy of the heavenly one. So uh, Calvin talks about the transposing even of the ceremonial aspects, not their abolition. It's not that they, they're completely irrelevant anymore. No, they've been, the telos of those laws is manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but we have the, um, the, so we have the recognition that the priesthood, we've talked about that, changed um the temple sacrifices are done laws of separation that were meant to distinguish israel from the pagan nations gets fulfilled in a different way in terms of our holiness as the way we walk before the lord um and there could be lots and lots of discussions about all of this but the, i think the simplest way to 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 distinguish it for people is you have the ten commandments are the standing law that's this in a sense the summary of the law and that can be further summarized down into love god mm -hmm. with heart mind soul and strength love your neighbor as yourself mm -hmm. the ten commandments are the standing law then uh, which further explicate the meaning of that and then you have the case laws mm -hmm. which are the positivizing of the ten commandments uh in terms of specific cases of how these laws would apply in the civil realm. So the Puritans talked about uh, the general equity mm -hmm. of the law, which is to say, you've got a, and this is, I think Ryan, you maybe mentioned this earlier, that there is often the, maybe in our pre-podcast discussion, that one of the objections is, well, these laws were given to an agrarian society, That's right. you know, thousands of years yeah. ago. Mm -hmm. uh, how can we, you know, Put a, why should we put a fence around our roof now? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, what possible relevance could that be? And so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, where the detailed work and the responsible work is done, it was some of it was done by the Puritans, some of, some of it was done by the, the new Puritans in the 20th century, and uh, some of it's being done by men like uh, Jonathan Burnside, uh, is to, to look at 
the way in which the standing commands are positivized in terms of specific cases uh, in the older covenant, um, and how they're the the equity, the general equity of those lords, even if even if there's not a one to one translation, because history doesn't stand still, we live in a very different kind of technological society. How they would apply it? Let's take a very simple one. The we don't fence our roofs because, well, here in Canada, we usually have pointed roofs. Mm -hmm. It's not much point having a party on one of those; could mm -hmm. be painful. Um, and uh, they're designed so the snow will will fall off of them. Um, but the basic requirement of fencing the roof with the flat roofs of that part of the world was that there was liability uh, if somebody fell off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in like the we, we have decks, we have second story patios that we have fences on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we and have pools and swimming pools. Yeah. I was going to mm -hmm. say is the is is, a, is another good illustration where mm -hmm. you know you've got real liability in the law if mm -hmm. you don't fence your pool. Mm -hmm. So there I would say you've got a principle of the general equity of the law. It's mm -hmm. going to be positivized slightly differently in terms of the historical circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but you've got real and genuine application of the requirements of God's standing law mm -hmm. applied into different areas of life. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, Paul in Ephesians cites the first, the, the first commandment. He says that's given with a promise. Um, when he says, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and you will live long, and he interestingly changes the last expression, you will live long in the earth rather than in the land. Hmm. So you see uh, the apostles doing this all of the time. Uh, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain, hmm. Paul says. So Paul apositivizes that commandment into the, into the role of pastors and leaders in the life of the church. Hmm. So... Um, we have the standing law, we have the case law, and that's where the in really fascinating and interesting work is done in the area of case law as we positivize for our own era. Um, and I discuss how that can be done in, in Mission of God. But to show the abiding relevance, maybe I'll wrap it up here because of time, but to demonstrate the abiding significance of this um, in terms of what Paul the Apostle says, uh, listen to this in First Timothy chapter 1 in terms of now the civil application of the law. So this is relevant to the moral, civil, ceremonial. The moral and the civil are intimately related, of course. Not all sins in the Bible that are condemned under moral law are crimes. So not, so not all of God's law is enforceable by the state. This is really important. And this is another thing why people needlessly panic. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they think, gosh, are we gonna be uh, um, punishing lying now and covetousness? Well, we've always punished lying in, in, in cases of perjury in courts of law, mm -hmm. um, but uh, there is no punishment, uh, civil punishment for not tithing or for, or for you know, covetousness. So not all of the moral law has a civil, civil sanction associated with it. But Paul very clearly, and this is why the reformers wrestled with it in 1 Timothy 1, uh, is talking about people who want to be teachers of the law, but he says they don't know what they're talking about, basically. And then he says in verse 8, but we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. And this is, goes back to what we were saying earlier about it not being a way of salvation, which is the Judaizers, the Pharisees had turned it into, mm -hmm. but a mirror. Uh, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, mm -hmm. for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, the homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, 
and listen to this, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So Paul does several things there. He's taking citations from the Old Testament law. He's saying they have a civil application because they're made for the unrighteous, for, for murderers and so on. Mm -hmm. And then he says, this is based on the glorious gospel. He doesn't make a law, mass, uh, a law gospel juxtaposition, mm -hmm. placing law and gospel in ant antithetical relation with one another. Mm -hmm. He says they're involved with one another. And this is the gospel, he says, that was entrusted to me. So this is what the reformers are wrestling with. And um, I think as responsible believers in our era, we have to wrestle with it as well. That God says nothing by mistake. He's given his law. Jesus rightly interprets the law. He magnifies it. The apostles apply it. They help us understand the issue of continuity and discontinuity in the priesthood and in the ceremony, ceremonies and so forth. And then uh, Paul binds men uh, and people to the law. And the reason law and gospel are so intimately intertwined is if we say that the law is no longer binding, well, if sin is lawlessness, the law is no longer binding, then there's no longer what? Sin. And if there's no sin, who needs salvation? Who needs redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ? So unless the world, the whole world, is placed under the law of God, it doesn't need the cross. And the reason we need the cross, Paul says to Titus, is because Christ is redeeming us from all lawlessness. Why? What, to make us lawless, to make us libertines, to make us licentious so that we can say, oh, I'm under grace, brother. No, <laughs> It's so that the grace of God is at work in our lives. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit so that we will love Christ, love his law, and obey his commandments. And Psalm 119, you know, pray it this week. Read through Psalm 119 this week and get into the space that David is in, in praising and magnifying and glorying in the precious gift of, of God's grace and love to us in his gift of the law, where he says, this is the way, walk in it. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned uh, a couple of times uh, Dr. Jonathan Burnside. Just for everyone's uh, information, uh, we're looking forward to having him with us next week. We're mm -hmm. going to carry on the conversation of theonomy, so you're not going to want to miss that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you'd like to take a deeper dive into the, the things we've talked about today, uh, pick up a copy of Mission of God. Like Joe mentioned earlier, there are several chapters dedicated to, to these topics. And I'd like to close with a reading of Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time